Come to the Home Depot this month and you'll learn a thing or two. Actually, three, with three free do-it-yourself workshops. Learn how to design and care for your container garden by selecting the best soil and aesthetically arranging your plants. Learn how to install tile flooring, even how to keep your outdoor deck and patio space in the best shape possible. See, it's never too late to learn something new. Register today at homedepot.com slash workshops for a do-it-yourself workshop near you. Only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. Today's show is International Adoption 101. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. In recent years, it's become more um, toddler and older age children. Uh, As domestic adoption often grows in another country, we tend to see uh, more children with special needs available for adoption than uh, healthy children. So um, that's generally the kinds of children that are available, toddlers to older kids and children with special needs. This show is brought to you by Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit. As you probably know, I'm Dawn Davenport. I am both your intrepid host as well as the director of Creating a Family. You can find us and all of our resources online at creatingafamily.org. This show is underwritten by the Jockey Being Family Foundation. Their mission is to strengthen adoptive families through post-adoption services. As their founder, Deborah Waller, says, one failed adoption is one too many. And I personally say amen to that. Uh, You could support their mission by buying a bear or a blanket at jockeybeingfamily.com. It's is a great time of year to consider it. They're, they would make wonderful uh, Christmas presents for your kids, and you would be killing two birds at the, one so- at the same time, supporting a wonderful organization, as well as getting your kids an adorable uh, bear or a blanket. We thank them for their support. Today we're going to be talking about international adoption. This, sh- this interview is intended to provide comprehensive information for people considering this type of adoption. We will be interviewing Rebecca Leeming. She is a licensed clinical social worker with 25 years working in adoption, including directing five different country programs. She has also taught parenting classes for adoptive parents, kinship parents, as well as foster parents, and maybe most important, she's an adoptive mom. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for, for talking with us today on about international adoption. Thank you so much for having me, Don. I think it helps to begin with giving an overview of just the, uh, and when I say general, I do mean general, uh, the, the process of international adoption. We say to families, start doing your research and talking with your spouse, if you have one, about the type of child that you think your family is best able to parent. They don't settle too rigidly, but do get educated and, and, and start the conversation. Then find out what countries have children of that age and general health that that you're looking for. Then choose an agency that has a strong program in that country. Now, some families prefer to choose the agency first and then choose the country based on the agency. Uh, And if the agency has more than one country, then then you've got a couple of uh, countries to choose from. If they don't, uh, you will be choosing just the country if they only only work with one. Either way, choosing the country first or the agency first will work. You then would apply to the agency, and they're going to guide you through the paperwork required by both the foreign government and the U.S. government. Uh, Then you will submit your dossier, which is a collection of your paperwork, to the country, and you will ultimately receive a referral of a specific child. You then decide on accepting or rejecting this referral, which often requires consultation with doctors who specialize in reviewing referrals. You then wait. Sometimes you have to uh, travel during the waiting time then come back home. Other times it's just a one trip and you travel, uh, but ultimately you uh, travel to bring your child home. Uh, That's just a general overview. Rebecca, would you add anything to that um, um, uh, touchstone on, on how the process can work? 
No, you sized that up nicely, Dawn. Oh, You've been to uh, this before, haven't you? Uh, yes, yes <laughs> I have. In fact, let me mention, uh, and I'm truly not doing this as a sales pitch, uh, way back in uh, 2006, actually November or December, I guess, of 2006, uh, I published a book, or actually I didn't, but uh, uh, Random House or Doubleday Broadway published a book that, that I wrote, The Complete Book of International Adoption, A Step-by-Step Guide to Finding Your Child. You do not need to go out and buy this book because it got a great review, a starred review from Library Journal. How about that for a humble brag, right? <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, but most libraries have the book, and if they don't, they are able to get it uh, via interlibrary loan easily because it was well um, uh, it was well uh, distributed to the library systems. Um, or, of course, you can go to uh, – I don't know if your local bookstore would have it, probably not – uh, now because it's it's older, but you you can get it on Amazon, of course, uh, and I wouldn't mind that either. However, uh, do note that that it was written, uh, uh, as I said, at the very uh, very end of 2006. So some things are out of date. The general process and the general information is not, and uh, we have, and I will be referring to them later in the show. We have kept the country charts, the comparison country charts, up to date on our website, creatingafamily.org. Anyway, yes, you were right. I have, uh, uh, this is not my first rodeo talking about international adoption. Um, So uh, one of the questions that I'd like to ask is, what type of kids generally are available for international adoption, Rebecca? Well, it's a good question, and I think the general answer is that um, in recent years it's become more um, toddler and older age children. Uh, As domestic adoption often grows in another country, we tend to see uh, more children with special needs available for adoption than uh, healthy children. So um, that's generally the kinds of children that are available, toddlers to older kids and children with special needs. Generally speaking, is about 18 months the youngest in any country that you're seeing uh, coming uh, coming over? Yes, I'm, I'm retired now, but I would say that's generally the, uh, that it's, it's become pretty difficult to have children much younger than that, due in part to the length of the process. True. Yeah, that's we're going to we're going to circle around to that. Uh, so when so the so lots of toddler age, 2 to 4 year olds as well as sibling groups and older children all are are available. Um one of the questions I think that that the general media sometimes confuses is the number of children available? Uh, there are a lot of figures that have been thrown around, uh, thrown about, and you'll read about them. Let's talk about that. How many children are available worldwide for international adoption? Well, there are uh, varying figures about that, Don, and I I don't know that I've heard a recent figure, but uh, UNICEF uh, publishes information like that, and. They are not, uh, of course, all children that are available for adoption. Mm -hmm. There's a a process within each country that determines if a child is truly um, without uh, available parents and and a true orphan in the sense that they have no other means of support and that that can be documented as well. Yeah, and that's the... We hear numbers of whatever you know. Pick a number, hundred thousand mm-hmm. you know orphans in the world, or or mm-hmm. whatever, and and people have the idea that there are all of these children just lined up waiting for uh, Americans or other or, or other uh, first world countries to drop in, pick them up, and take them home. And that simply is not the truth. And it certainly uh, uh, is. The process is a lot more complicated than than that process than. Uh, and, and the number of children is, is greatly exaggerated if you would assume that, that all those children are available. Mm-hmm. There are a a lot of regulatory fingers in international adoption. 
So honestly, you can't be allergic to paperwork if this is the type of adoption you are considering. Because right. although there is paperwork in other types of adoption, obviously, but there is more in international adoption. I tell people to think of it as your labor pains. Uh, so uh, we have the uh, we have both the foreign country involved, and we have the U.S. government involved. Uh, so in each of them have regulations, and then we have the agencies involved, and, and oftentimes the agencies have have different regulations or additional regulations. So, uh, Rebecca, why is the U.S. government involved in saying who can adopt or what type of children can be adopted? Why are they involved at all in international adoption? Well, they have become involved as a regulatory uh, agency in approving agencies to be able to conduct international adoptions. They're also involved with the immigration of children from other countries to our country. So they they come into the story uh, at a couple of different places. Uh, with immigration, they approve parents for adoption after um, several documents have been completed, and then they ultimately approve the child to enter the U.S. as well. Yeah, and, and the, the, as we are members of an international treaty that requires, and, and the State Department was involved anyway, um, but uh, the degree of their involvement is dictated by the what's called the Hague Treaty, um, Hague Treaty on Intercountry Adoption. Um, agencies also have different and, and sometimes have different and, and more stringent requirements than either the foreign government or the U.S. government. Um, off the top of your head, what are some of the agency requirements that may differ and be more stringent than uh, the governmental requirements? Well, there are several. You know, agencies are founded by people, and um, different agencies have different guidelines for families. There are some that only work with Christian families. There are some that uh, only work with heterosexual families who only work uh, and do not work with single parents. Um, there are many guidelines that come into place uh, by the agency, and there are, you know, uh, as I'm sure we'll talk later, there are countries that have different guidelines about which families in another country can adopt their children. So. There are several hoops to jump through, so to speak. We did have a, when you were mentioning paperwork, we did have a mom come in our office one day with all the original documents and all the copies tucked under her shirt, and she said, I've come to deliver <laughs> my my dossier to the, to the office. So we had a good chuckle about that. <laughs> How funny. Oh, that's very funny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, what are some of the country-specific requirements for uh, selecting adoptive parents? Well, that's a, another good question. Some countries uh, have different rules about um, criminal history for applicants, about... Um, the number of children they can currently have in their home and still adopt, uh, about any mental health history. There are different different guidelines that, that come into place depending on the country. Uh, yes, and, and the mental health restrictions can often feel fairly antiquated by our yes. standards. Mm -hmm. And that's something... To be uh, for us to be aware of when when uh, when considering if you're taking antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs or if you are currently seeing a, a mental health professional, all of those things are things you need to talk uh, bring up at the beginning with your agency. Um, it's something you absolutely need to to think about. When we you had mentioned something that uh, when we're talking about country re specific requirements. Uh, 
Some countries have restrictions on the weight or the BMI, uh, body mass index, for the parents. And a number of countries, in fact, as far as I know, most countries, if not all, restrict uh, families uh, that are in the LGBTQ community uh, where they will not accept families who are, uh, are open about uh, their sexual orientation. So uh, that's something else to consider. And, and you, as you pointed out, uh, single countries have uh, very different approaches to single motherhood um, as to whether or not they would accept that. So something else to something to consider. Some of the things to consider. Um, one of the things, just going back to touch on when you were talking about agency requirements. Uh, some some of the other differences we see in in agencies some agencies allow families to request a gender some do not uh so that's something else to think about um, um when you're if that's important to you that's something you need to ask and and be upfront about and and um, uh, at the very beginning all right uh, you mentioned this uh, at the beginning when we were uh, when I was we were talking about the the type of kiddos that are available. Many international adoption programs now are considered special need adoption programs, meaning that the children may have needs that uh, require a different type of parenting. However, the type of special needs varies considerably uh, in, in in each country uh, for, between countries as well as in each country. And it can vary from minor medical uh, to correctable medical, such as cleft palate, club foot, to relatively minor non-correctable conditions, such as limb differences or visible birthmarks, all the way to significant correctable or non-correctable medical conditions. And, and it would also include emotional issues caused by well, any number of things, but abuse, neglect, and institutionalized living. Uh, and uh, it seems important for parents to realize that if you are considering adopting internationally, the idea of a very young, very healthy child is probably not realistic. Would you agree with that, Rebecca? Yes, I certainly would. Okay. I think that's, I think, important for people to realize. But I also think it's important when we think of special needs adoption, um, we are often, people often think of, of children with very significant special needs. And those children certainly exist. And let's be honest, everybody's definition of significant differs. But um, there is a lot of, of, of variation as to the degree of special needs uh, if you're looking at international adoption. So what are some of the typical health issues, uh, physical as well as mental health issues, that you see in children uh, that are available for international adoption? Well, you've certainly described some of them, Don. but I would add things like um, we've seen children with uh, microcephaly, with, um, uh, as you mentioned, limb differences. A lot of uh, Asian children with cleft lip and palate um is is something we see often but and as you mentioned you know countries describe those needs in different ways which is uh as you mentioned earlier an important factor to have a doctor who's familiar with international adoption review uh the referral information we most agencies have a special needs checklist uh, that's part of the home study process where uh, families, with the aid of a medical person, if there's not a, um, a family member or an acquaintance, uh, they will often talk to their doctor about the kinds, different kinds of special needs and what those needs could involve in caring for the children and, and specific uh, knowledge that that would be due to that particular need. So that's an area that I think most people need to thoroughly uh, understand and th 
think through before they start the process because what often happens is if they see a child with a special need, uh, they will sometimes step forward without uh, with more of an emotional response mm-hmm. to that child than thinking through the the day in day out care of that child and and how it could change their family's lifestyle or the lives of the other children in their home and so it's it's certainly something to be considered but uh clubfoot um oh i'm trying to think <laughs> quickly here uh different but it's just a heart issue of different kinds a, of things heart issues yes we've seen we, a lot of that seen a lot of heart issues mm-hmm. uh, some correctable Many correctable, and yes. some, quite frankly, have already been corrected, depending on the country and the, yes. how developed their medical system is. Um, right. Children may well, yeah. Families travel only to discover that surgery has taken place during the waiting time, and uh, they have here they've prepared for it, lined up a specialist, and they arrive in the country to find out the surgery has already been completed. So, you know, one of the things we see is a lot of children. Uh, with correctable medical issues. And that is something for families to consider. There's a family in specific that I know about that uh, lived in a very rural area, and the nearest children's hospital they checked into that had a program, an excellent program, um, but it was a three-hour car drive away. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and it would require a lot of, and they, they had two children already, and they ended up re- uh, rejecting the referral, even though it was they 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 felt that they would be very adequate for for meeting this child's needs. But just the day to day, both of them worked, and how would they? You know, the, the the number of doctor's appointments, and it wouldn't last terribly long. I mean, once the correction had taken place, the, but there's always the yearly checkups and things, and so that you know that that is something to to consider. Uh, how common is it to see children with developmental and growth delays being referred for international adoption? I, I would say for most countries that's a given. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we 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 view that as just the starting point for most children who've lived in institutional care. Uh, the one of the international adoption clinics in Minnesota has a lot of good information about um, the rates of um, height and weight differences for children growing up in an institutional setting. So that's certainly something we tell families to expect is developmental delays um, based often on you know, the time they've spent in an institution. And there's a lot of good research uh, about uh, how children can um, make up these delays once placed in a um, um, a loving, nurturing environment. Yes. But some delays, and, and this is where your international uh, adoption doctor can help you, there are some factors that would influence the child's ability um, to fully come back from some of the delays caused by institutional care. And there are any number of factors that influence the, generally speaking, a child's ability uh, to uh, to rebound. Um, institutional care versus foster care, We the, the word that's most often used is orphanages, uh, and that's still the reality for, I think, most countries that are placing children, uh, that children are coming from orphanages. Uh, However, uh, foster care is available in a number of countries, uh, I would say. Do you see the shift changing much between institutional and foster care? Yes, absolutely. Many countries are even visiting countries that have provided foster care as their program for children without parents and learning more about how that works. There are other places that are very untrusting of foster care. Um, uh, my children are adopted from Haiti, and there's a, a been a terrible problem there with rest of the children 
that are being used as really uh, slaves by families um, who are depend children who are dependent on them for their care, and so the director in Haiti is while understanding the benefits of it, you know, is challenged the thought of supervising a program like that to make sure children are truly receiving nurturing care in foster homes. But worldwide, you know, our our country has shifted to that system mm-hmm. over institutional settings, and I think that's coming uh, where possible in many countries. Yeah, I think it is as well. Um, and, that's, and there are certain countries that have very well-developed uh, foster care programs, so yes. uh, something to consider. And generally speaking, um, a child who has been in a good foster home uh, will have uh, fewer developmental delays. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of factors involved, including the quality of the foster home as well as the underground under underlying uh, health of the child, but still something to consider. Some of the uh, other health issues that we uh, know that people are concerned about are uh, prenatal exposures um, to, first of all, alcohol. Um, what do you tell people uh, about how much information you will have and how, and how they can make a decision if they feel like parenting a child that uh, is somewhere on the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder um, is is um, is not something they want to do. What type of advice would you give those families? Well, that's a, it's a great question. And again, where an international doc is a great um, advisor in this area, you know, in reviewing the, the medical information available. The truth is that, you know, many countries um, have children arrive anonymously on their their doorsteps and getting information about any drug or alcohol history from a birth parent is just not possible. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, only information available is the child and the Symptoms of fetal alcohol syndrome are sometimes physically apparent, but there are other countries that will report um, how much drinking was done and at what stage of the pregnancy. So you mm-hmm. get very exact information because they interview the the birth mother and um, you know and and are are able to provide, you know, abundant information about that. But it's certainly a risk that that all parents take in adopting and you know, it's sometimes I think why families choose international adoption because they think there's less likelihood of drug or alcohol abuse in another country than there is in our own. So it's a it's an important issue to look into and and to get some good information about but um of course you know agencies share or should <laughs> share all the information they have available on a child and uh and that just varies a great deal between countries yeah it's a um and again, this the 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 book I was referring to, the complete book of international adoption. I really took a deep dive into this, and it's it's really complex because, as you say, most countries, with the exception of really South Korea, is the only one I know of where they're interviewing. They do a good job of interviewing um, expectant women, or, or usually after birth, birth moms, um, uh, about their alcohol use. But that's the exception and not the rule. So you have to look at things like uh, the, the rate of alcoholism or alcohol consumption in a country, and uh, and things, and also the the acceptance of women in drinking. You know, so because that can that can vary as well, as well as, as in, in large countries, it can vary greatly depending on the region of the country. All of those are are, are difficult decisions for parents. 
but your uh, international adoption uh, uh, medical specialist uh, really is trained to try to help you sort through some of that and, and keeps most that I have spoken with keep up to date with all of that data. Plus, they're reviewing a number of referrals coming from these countries. So that's a, you're, not, uh, you're not alone in trying to make uh, – well, you're alone in making the decision, but you're not alone in, not, in trying to find all the information. Um, the, uh, another question we get is often about uh, some of the blood-borne diseases such as hepatitis B or HIV. Uh, are you seeing as much hepatitis B? There was a time when um, there was a fair amount of uh, where the children coming over had been exposed or were carriers and some were actively, you know, actively had the disease. Um, is that as common now or, or do you know? I'm, I'm not as familiar with recent uh, referrals, Don, but uh, it certainly has been. Most, you know, medical screening uh, for the child prior to traveling covers testing for that. Mm-hmm. But we've had we've had some surprise cases. I think that's um, it's another thing in the list of risk factors uh, that that are possible. And some children, you know, may have been recently exposed you know, after a referral is even accepted. And and um, so that's, that's always a possibility. We have always encouraged families to retest for all of those things upon arriving in the United States uh, to make sure, you know, that um, any needed treatment is provided. My uh, you know, they 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 screen for tuberculosis. They they screen for many many things that uh, mm-hmm. children can be exposed to prior to joining their families. And tuberculosis is more common than we realize in other parts of the world, and we certainly have seen uh, uh, that be a disease that children have when they come, and that needs treatment upon arrival for certain. Right. My children were treated for it just as a prevention uh, due to their background. Yeah, and that, that, that's, that also is something. But, again, your doctor will be able to guide you knowing the country that your, your child comes from. Yes. How much information? <clears throat> One of the things that we hear from, from families is, you know, I, will I have enough information in order to make a decision on whether we're the best family for this child? So how much information are you typically going to have on the health of a child when you're getting the referral? You get a referral of a child, you usually get a picture, and you get um, a medical form. How detailed is the medical form and how accurate? Well, we we get varying amounts of information depending on the country. Um, you know... <laughs> You mentioned South Korea, and um, the director of our partner agency there was a medical doctor. So we got great information (laughs) on those kids. Um, And sometimes, uh, you know, more information than families really even wanted or needed that sometimes uh, was, you know, so impressive from, from that agency. But... Uh, other countries, it can be very minimal information. And we haven't seen a lot of inaccuracies over the years, I don't think, but um, there certainly have been some surprises. We've uh, gotten children home from a noisy, loud orphanage to discover that they have a hearing impairment that no one had really picked up on. Uh, we've had... Um, other surprises, as I mentioned, with um, um, blood testing that had been done, but it, it's a little, it, it would be, in my experience, fewer than, less than 10% has, um, of our referrals have had inaccurate information. And, and it could have been accurate at the time of the test, but something could have developed between Valid the test point. time and, and uh, travel. 
Yeah, because these children, it's not static, and oftentimes the the waiting time, and we'll talk about that in a minute, between referral and travel can be long enough that things could change. Yes. This, this interview is brought to you by Creating a Family. We are talking about International Adoption 101. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption as well as new resources that we're adding to our site each week. Uh, We'd love to have you sign up for the weekly newsletter. You can do that at the top right side of our website, creatingafamily.org. It's free, and uh, it will just bring you additional information to help you along your decisions and your your, uh, adoption journey. At the very beginning of our uh, time together, Rebecca, I described a a very general kind of overview process. But there is another way that that people sometimes enter into international adoption, and that is through looking on waiting children sites. Most uh, and waiting children are children who are uh, that the agency has permission to. Uh, for lack of a better word, advertise, market, expose the public to. They're trying, they're actively trying to find homes for these children. And uh, almost every agency that is active in international adoption or very active uh, will have uh, waiting children listed on their website. At Creating a Family, we have a waiting child section of ours where agencies uh, our partner agencies will list the children that they're actively trying to find homes for. And then there's other uh, other sites such as uh, the Rainbow Kids site. Uh, and there are others as well, some that, that are specifically devoted to uh, sites that, I mean, I'm sorry, specifically devoted to um, uh, a, a type of special need. Um, um, there's uh, Reese's Rainbow that's specifically finding homes for children with Down syndrome. So, Families can go to these waiting children sites or waiting children lists and search. Almost always they're able to search by type of special need. So that's another way to uh, to approach it is if you feel like, <clears throat> excuse me, we're a, a family that uh, is uh, could easily uh, parent a child with limb differences or a heart condition. Um, or cerebral palsy or or, epilepsy or whatever, you can uh, screen, oftentimes can screen through these uh, waiting children lists and find children. Now, there will usually be an agency associated with that child, and then you would contact the agency to get more information because, quite frankly, only limited information is shared uh, uh, publicly like that, but if you wanted to uh, contact the child's social worker or a social worker at the agency, they can give you more detailed information, and then you would have to work through that agency to adopt that child. Um, I don't know, Rebecca, how how uh, the, from the standpoint of how many people enter the the more traditional way, which is decide on a country, apply to the agency, and receive a referral, versus. Um, uh, going from uh, a waiting child list. Do you have any thoughts on that? It would be great to to get the statistics there. I know part of um, the application process for the agency I worked for had, you know, how did you hear about <laughs> Dylan? Or, sorry, didn't mean to slip up there, Don. No, uh, that's but okay. They, <laughs> They, you know, so, you know, the PR people in an agency may be able to track the source of families coming to the agency and yeah, have that know. available. What but are some of the be... cautions for people doing that, of finding a child? I mean, because it's mm-hmm. a great way, in a way, because you know that you can, oh, if you yeah. settled on a special need, it's a great way of finding, okay, well, let's just short-circuit the process. Where are the kids yeah. who have this special need? What yeah. are some of the concerns or the cautions that you have for families going for this approach? Well, one of the first things I think of is it makes the process especially long. If you haven't um, applied and gotten a home study done yet, um, you know, it it makes the already long process even more gruelingly long. But 
there is um, also the um, chance, as I mentioned before, of making an emotional response to a picture if one's available. You know, a a little cutie can just Mm -hmm. start calling your name and... Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's and it's not always a need that, as you mentioned before, works well with your family's location or lifestyle or you know whatever the case may be. So you know, as just a general rule, I think it's better to think those things through carefully before you start um, uh, scooping out kids from. Uh, special needs waiting lists of children. But we've sure seen it happen that way and be successful. And, you know, parents come to to Internet, they come to adoption and to international adoption in various uh, paths, but there is uh, often um, a calling, some people call it, for a specific child that, that comes to a family and and often, you know, it it works out well, but I think there needs to be some deep soul searching and hard questions asked uh, of not only, um, you know, the parents, but any siblings. We had a an adoptee tell us once that, you know, their their parents had adopted numerous children with special needs, and the children finally said. Who who do you think will be doing the ongoing care for that child after you're gone? <laughs> you know, you're mm-hmm. you're you're asking, uh, you're making decisions for our lives as well, uh, with the number of children with challenges that you're adding to the family, some lifelong challenges. So, good questions to ask, and uh, but there are sure some wonderful kids. You know, I I often tell families. All of us have special needs. Some of them show and some of them don't. But, you know, there aren't any perfect people in the world. Um, so. That's very valid. Yeah. You yes. know, um, we, we had a mom who had adopted a child who ended up having a, a, a significant emotional problem, and they they later adopted a child with cerebral palsy. And the mom was a physical therapist, and she said, oh, CP, piece of cake. The mm-hmm. other thing, that's what's eating our, <laughs> our lunch. So uh, Yeah, I, I think know, across uh, the board people say that the emotional yeah. issues are far more challenging than the physical right. issues. Because right. you adjust and your family adjusts and you get into your routine and um and that's across the board. Are is it possible for if you if you've applied to an agency and so you've had an international home study, is it po- and then you go on to uh any of the sites uh and you find a a child that's listed with a different agency, can you use your home study uh that you've already done to both save money and speed up the process? Um, most of the time, you can. There there have been uh, exceptions to that. Um, of course, the home study needs to approve the family for the specific special needs a child has. So that's also a, a consideration. In looking at lists, sometimes families find a child that has a special need they have not agreed to accept, and so the home study needs an addendum or um, to be updated or, you know, if it's reached its expiration, uh, a home study update needs to be done anyway. You know, and another thing that we see is that some agencies have uh, won't accept a another agency's home study because one that may have, you know, their liability issues for the agency accepting it, but also some agencies have stricter, uh, for example, education requirements. Mm-hmm. So, they um, uh, the minimum, let's say, is ten hours, which, in my humble opinion, is is woefully inadequate. So, and and, and other an agency might have a thirty-hour education requirement and have specific 
educational uh, courses that they want the families to take. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, it, now it's possible that they would accept the home study and then the family does the additional educational work, and, and that's possible as well. But it's just not a guarantee. Um, but it's certainly uh, a number of agencies will try to work with you if, you're, uh, if you have found a child that they're actively seeking a family for. Right, right. Yeah. As, as again, where agencies have different policies about that sort of thing and um, may be worth checking into as part of your inquiry uh, about an agency. Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. And by the way, the website that I was uh, I was referring to before when I said, I think I forgot to actually give the URL, it's rainbowkids.com. And they have a, a large listing of, of waiting kiddos. All right, so assuming you're not going the waiting child route and you're trying to decide on a country, I think something that surprises families, and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, uh, is that... Uh, countries are going to have very specific requirements on whether or not they are going to accept you. We mentioned some of those requirements. They can be um, what we think of as arcane restrictions, such as you know taking antidepressants, um, how many how many children you have, uh, that type of thing. Whether or not uh, uh, let's see what some your weight. There's just a whole host of things, and that's a surprise uh, to people. Um, and one of the things that uh, we encourage people uh, to do is we have, at Creating a Family, we have country comparison charts. And what we've done is analyze the top 17 countries that are placing to the U.S. for 25 factors uh, that we think are important for families when deciding on a, on a country uh, and trying to find out if, if, what type of children are available, what are the restrictions on parents, so I really would recommend that you uh, utilize that resource. Again, it's free. It's on our website. Uh, you would go to creatingafamily.org, uh, go to Adoption, click on Adoption Comparison Charts. Uh, and uh, if the site changes some, which it may in the future, you may have to play around some. But the charts will be there, and we do our best to keep them up to date. They are generally updated once a year unless we know of a change, and then they're updated right then. So uh, that's something important to, to know about. A question that we have from people is, is it a risk? I think a lot of people are afraid of getting involved with a country and then having the country closed down. And, in fact, it is a risk, we, we tell people, although it seems to me generally people have a warning. Now, oftentimes people will ignore the warning, um, but that generally people, we do have a feel before a country is going to close down, uh, and if you've, you know, that, that some families will know. Um, would you agree with that, or do you think it is? Uh, how big of a risk is it that the that you get involved in international adoption and have spent your money and got your hopes and your your, your dreams up, and then the country closes down? Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. Mm-hmm. There's usually some warning signs before that happens. It's probably a good reason to choose an agency that's working in multiple countries because often a family can be rerouted, mm-hmm. <laughs> as it were, to to a different program that they qualify for without uh, a great deal of interference in the process. Um, you know, if a family, I think it's unlikely that families who've accepted a referral um, are not allowed to complete their adoption. That's that's a little more rare. But if you have not received a referral and the country closes, then then of course you know other decisions need to be made. So um, that's that's sure something to keep an eye on. And we have families who start reading the news about the country they're working with a lot more regularly, you know, when they start the adoption process with that country. But uh, as you said, there's usually some warning uh, if there's trouble. Exactly. Uh, And there are uh, are various ways that you can get information. 
uh, kind of get a feel for um, a country's stability. One, your agency. Two, uh, the State Department has a uh, a good website or a good section of their website uh, that deals with international adoption, and that uh, website is adoption.state.gov. And you can go there as well to get country-specific information. And hang out in uh, online support groups or in person as well, uh, support groups uh, that are either general to adoption or specific to the country you are considering. And I can assure you the rumor mill is active, active, active. Uh, and so you'll get uh, sometimes that you can debate on how uh, – you may be getting more information and more concern than is than is warranted, but uh, that's another uh, good source. And Facebook has a number of country-specific uh, support groups. So if any country you're thinking of, it makes sense to, to join um, some of those groups, as well as I think it makes a lot of sense to join general adoption groups just to start getting educated about adoption. So I realize that many of you are probably at the very beginning stages but it, this is a good time to start the education process. So I'll uh, put in a plug for the Creating a Family Online Support Group. It's it's very large, very active, well-moderated, and uh, I recommend it. And you can just type in the words Creating a Family in Facebook, and it will pop up, or it's facebook.com slash groups slash Creating a Family. Either way, you can get to it. So, Rebecca, what should people look for when choosing an international adoption agency? You mentioned one thing is that something to at least consider is whether or not they have more than one country program. And if you're choosing a, a country that it doesn't have a very active and very stable uh, program, that could be a problem. I mean, that could be something you really want to consider. What are some other things that people should think about when choosing an agency? Well, there's a... It's a good question, and I think uh, there are even some sites that um, have a list of questions you should ask an agency when you're well, making that initial we, inquiry. Let, let, me, let me interrupt you. Yes, we we are one of those that has that. In fact, we have an entire a multimedia guide on choosing uh, an adoption agency, and we've got an, an, an entire section, entire chapter of that guide is on international adoption. <clears throat> Excuse me, we have a very detailed list for uh, questions to ask, and then we have charts for helping you compare costs so you're making certain that you, you know what, what is being included so you're comparing apples to apples. So, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So uh, ours is the Creating a Family Multimedia Guide on Choosing an Adoption Agency, and you can get it on our site, creatingafamily.org, hover over the word resources, and click on e-guides, and it will take you right there. I'm sorry, I, inter I interrupted you, Rebecca. So, yes, there are a lot of questions. that, that uh, We have a, l a long list of questions uh, for you to customize uh, to, to ask. Um, so go ahead, though. What are some other things? Well, I think the length of time an agency has been in existence is a, a worthwhile question. You want to make sure you're working with uh, experienced people, and I think um, asking for uh, some references of families who have worked with that agency is a good question, what their experience was like, how they were treated, um, how the flow of information uh, went with them. Uh, I think asking um, the... the uh, the validity of their license in the state where they are located is uh, another question. If there have been complaints against that agency, the the uh, Hague Treaty that, that you mentioned earlier makes a record of those sorts of things. Um, let's see. Um, you know, I think even the location can be a consideration. I mean, most agencies, uh, depending on the country program, work with families all across the United States. But um, agencies who have post-adoption events like um, heritage camps or um, weekends for teenagers, those kinds of things, it's it's probably worth being 
relatively close to the agency just for the follow-up support that comes after the adoption. Uh, You know, our agency did groups for teens and and, uh, different kinds of things that uh, made being in our area a little uh, more advantageous. But the, you know, oftentimes it's, you know, the agency that works with the country maybe that you're drawn to and want to adopt mm-hmm. from, uh, that can certainly be a big factor in, in choosing one. One of the um, things that we encourage people to think about is how long the agency has been working in that country, mm-hmm. uh, the stability of, of the program. But I've, I've often wondered how how can you assess the the strength of their program in a country. One, of course, is, is how long they've been there. But what type of questions would you ask about um, to determine um, how many people are employed by them in the country? Is that a fair question? How deep are their ties? How connected are they? Uh, how, how often they, do they communicate with the people that are working for them mm-hmm. in the country? What are those type of questions so that you get a feel for their true expertise in mm-hmm. your country of choice? Well, I, I think that's that's a really good question, and I think you know the number of times they visit that country, um, you know, the the or or the people from that country come to visit them, you know, those those kinds of questions can often elicit the strength of a relationship between people. You know, there there are countries that only work have their government staff communicate with agencies and and those country programs are much more difficult to feel like you have uh, a strong relationship because those government officials change regularly and you know and they've done that sometimes to keep um, the the possibility of a close relationship at bay uh in in defense of you know ethical uh adoptions mm-hmm. unbiased uh treatment of all agencies that sort of thing so uh you know i always enjoyed the countries programs where we did have personal relationships with the staff in those countries that we worked with because it was easier to develop you know that trust um and to be able to get further information about a child when wanted or needed or more information uh, given on a regular basis about that child than working with simply government officials in another country. So those kinds of relationships do vary. And, you know, and then and changes happen with uh, staff at an agency or staff in another country, and and then a, a new relationship is forged. But um, those the strength of that relationship is is a, a definitely a good thing to ask about, Don. I think that's good insight um, that you're providing to families to encourage them to make those inquiries. And and the only way to know is to really just ask ask the question. Well, and then a question that we, of course, everyone, we get a lot, and, and everyone who is considering uh, adopting of any sort ask is, how much does it cost to adopt internationally? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I... I I hate that it does. Uh, you know, much of it is, uh, you know, directed toward actual services such as, you know, traveling. You mentioned some countries require one trip, some two trips, and international travel is not expensive, or staying in another country for uh, specific lengths of time is not always inexpensive. But the paperwork, the processing of the paperwork, uh, has several steps that involve fees. Uh, The agency has a fee uh, to uh, provide personnel and services to families. The country, the sending country, often have fees that are used 
to provide the care for that child, but also many of the other children uh, in an institutional setting. So there are a lot of expenses involved. And sadly, uh, you know, this, the expenses as the cost of almost all other things continues to rise. So it is an expensive undertaking. And I, it makes me sad that, you know, many great families uh, who would adopt and be great parents are simply just not able to afford it. Thankfully, there are a lot of grant programs out there that, that assist families with the cost. We've had families, churches help them with the cost of adopting, and you know there's, there's a tax credit that helps after it's all over with and you don't mm-hmm. need the money as much. <laughs> Yeah. It's a, well, you can a recovery. use it to pay back. Yeah, right, yeah. right. We've Upwards had of thirteen thousand. Sure. Do a you know home equity loans? You know, I'm not sure that's always the best thing to do, but you know, families have done that to come up with the expenses. They are spread out over you know a length of you know sometimes two or three years, which helps as well. But you don't usually pay for the service until it's rendered, but um, there are definitely a multitude of fees, and it's not an inexpensive undertaking by any means. And Rebecca mentioned grants. Uh, We have a list of grants. Uh, Sometimes agencies will have a specific grant for a child they're looking for, Um, but other than that, we have a list of granting entities uh, on uh, our website, we have a uh, go to creatingafamily.org. Uh, hover over adoption, click on A or click on adoption. Either one. Go to A to Z resource guide, and uh, we have a, a section on grants and loans. Uh, we also have a, a very large section on the adoption tax credit. We do an annual show where people submit. We have two of the leading experts on the credit. Uh, in, uh, and so uh, as long as that is available, uh, you can uh, submit your questions to our annual show or look at our Q&A page. So all of those things are, um, are available to, to help defray the cost. And obviously the costs are, are continuing to rise, partly because of the travel requirements. cost of travel is not going down. Also, uh, we're seeing that countries are requiring more travel, so, or many countries are, not all. Uh, so you can expect to pay certainly upwards of of $30,000. I would recommend that you go to, again, the country comparison charts that I mentioned before uh, on our website, creatingafamily.org, and uh, we have the cost broken out uh, by country for the top uh, 18, I mean, I think 17 countries, or it doesn't matter, top X number of countries that are are placing in the United States. Bottom line is, as Rebecca says, it costs a lot. Um, so the next uh, $64 million question, pardon the pun, is uh, how long does it take to adopt a child internationally? The process, uh, again, varies country by country, but I would estimate a general timeline of uh, a minimum of one year and more likely two uh, and up to three. So uh, that's where sometimes families who've identified a child uh, for adoption, uh, that process can go more quickly because they're not waiting for the referral of a child, that waiting time is uh, subtracted uh, from the process. So uh, depending on the kind of child you want to adopt, um, you know, the time frame can change as well. We're getting some static on the line here. Uh, Yeah, I think that uh, I I think your advice is well uh, taken that, uh, quite frankly, you can – it's possible – uh, to adopt in about a year, uh, and that's particularly if you're adopting a child. If you're not, if you're open to a lot of different special needs, but it's probably safer to uh, expect the whole process to take uh, closer to two years. Uh, 
thank you so much, uh, Rebecca Leeming, for talking with us today about everything you ever wanted to know about international <laughs> adoption but were afraid to ask. Uh, we truly uh, appreciate your, your expertise and your advice to those who are beginning this process. Well, it was a pleasure, and I'm I'm sorry if that static is coming from my end, Don. Who knows at this point? Yes, that's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, Let me thank take... you again for the privilege. Thank you. Let me take a moment to thank some of our uh, uh, partners who uh, allow us to bring you this show. Everything that uh, we do here at Creating a Family is is brought to you by the support. Uh, from the uh, agencies and, and organizations that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate information to pre- and post-adoptive families. Some of our partners include Children's House International. They are a nonprofit, Hague-accredited international adoption agency with programs in 13 countries. They provide full services, including home studies, in the states of Florida, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Texas, Utah, and Washington State, and they place children with any U.S.-approved family worldwide. And we also have Spence Chapin. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit organization in the New York City metro area that has been offering adoption services for more than 100 years. Their robust post-adoption services provide birth parents, adoptive parents, and adoptees a supportive community and a connection to professionals who understand uh, the unique aspects of adoption. And for those of you who are approaching the end of year, uh, if you have benefited from this show in any way, do us a favor. Please donate. Uh, we exist. We are a nonprofit, uh, and, and we exist based on the donation and support for those who believe in what we do. Uh, and every little bit counts, and we would truly appreciate uh, a, any size donation. It, uh, it helps us. Uh, continue to do what we do. And if you've benefited, we really would appreciate that support. It's easy to do. It's quick to do. You just go to any page of our website. There is a green uh, square at the top right side that says Donate. You click on it, uh, and uh, you can pop in, make a one-time donation. You can make a small donation and have it happen monthly. Honestly, the cup of a, uh, the, the amount of a cup of coffee uh, was all it would need to be. Uh, and if it comes out monthly, it adds up over time. So please, please, please consider doing that. Thank you so much for being with us today, and I will see you next week. <laughs>